0: Well, good early evening, everyone. I hope you're well. It's good to see such a nice crowd today. Thank you for coming out. Uh, My name's Eric Papenfus. My wife and I, we own the uh, bookstore here. I want to thank you for coming, and we're really pleased to have you here at The Scholar. Now, before we get started on tonight's program, uh, if you could take a moment and silence your cell phones. We're going to be recording this for podcasts, podcast, and it should be a great conversation, so maybe just turn your phone off. Couple quick announcements before we get going. Um, first of all, we are hosting, as you may have heard, the Harrisburg Book Festival coming up in less than a month starting Thursday, October 3rd. Okay, applause, that's fine. We can applaud for that. Through Friday, October 6th. We have a website devoted to it it's hbgbookfest.com, and we've got over 20 best selling authors from around the world. Uh, We're going to do all sorts of things on all those days, including having a big tent uh, outside with 20,000 bargain books priced $3 and less. All the events for the Book Festival are free and open to the public, and uh, we want you to mark your calendars and maybe pick up one of these nice festival brochures. You may have seen it in the Berg magazine or elsewhere, but it talks about all the many uh, exciting events such as Smart Talk Live with uh, historian Eric Foner, or um, Ibram Kendi returning and Isha Sasse coming. It's going to be a great, great event. So, um, in addition to that, you may also have heard we've got a big event coming up in December. We have the author Salman Rushdie returning to the bookstore on Monday, December 9th. Uh, those tickets, which basically, if you purchase a book, you can reserve a ticket for the events, are still available, but they uh, they will sell out. we sold over 100, and we can only sell... Uh, a couple hundred uh, based on uh, the amount of people that we can fit here. So please get your tickets now if you're interested. Now, well, I have the pleasure of introducing our wonderful speakers here this evening. I want to start with uh, Kate Barron of the Patriot News and Live. As vice president of content, she led the challenging transition to digital that included converting the daily paper to thrice weekly. And since then, Live has become one of the largest news and information websites in the state, with more than seven million monthly unique visitors. Think about that. During her seven-year tenure as editor, the newsroom has continued to be recognized for outstanding journalism, winning newspaper of the year, Keystone Sweepstakes awards, as well as all sorts of national honors. And she and her husband live in Camp Hill, and we're glad to have you back here tonight. Kate, thank thank you. Mr. Mayor. We also have our author star tonight, James Poniewozik, who is the chief television critic for the New York Times. He has written reviews and essays with an emphasis on television as it reflects a changing culture and politics. His dispatches from the 2016 campaign trace the rise of Donald Trump, quote, a being made of pure television, to the nation's highest office, in part through the use of popular media. Along with traditional television reviews, he's examined the broadening definition of TV in an era when anyone with a smartphone can become a compelling broadcaster. And before coming to the Times, Mr. Pony Wozik spent 16 years with Time magazine as a columnist and television and media critic. And he received a Bachelor of Arts degree in English. We love our English majors from (laughs) the University of Michigan. And of course, we're here this evening for his brand new book, displayed right there, Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television, and the Fracturing of America. Critics call it trenchant and often slyly hilarious, a penetrating and sobering review of the raucous, raging, farcical reality show that is the chaotic age of Donald Trump. Yes, (laughs) the book has received countless praise from numerous media outlets and authors. Publishers Weekly named it one of the top 10 politics and current events books of the fall for 2019. It has been called the smartest, most original, most unexpectedly definitive account of the rise of Trump and Trumpism we've had so far by Book Forum, and Emily Nussbaum writes, the book is the Mueller report of television criticism. <laughs> James Ponywosik's audience of one is both damning and illuminating a witty, penetrating expose of Trump's most intimate relationship, the one with the media that made him. So thank you, James and Kate, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us here at The Scholar, and without further ado, will you please join me in giving them a warm Harrisburg welcome. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Mr. Mayor, and we're delighted to be here. And I'm so excited, I read the book in about two days. It's fascinating, it's funny, it's challenging, and it is an entirely different take on politics today. So I, I can highly recommend it. Um, but I'm gonna ask you another question first before we get to the book. Sure thing. Um, as all, a lot of you know, I've been editor out at the Patriot News for many, many years, and not too long ago, one of our absolute best writers was a woman by the name of Sharon Johnson she did our TV and film criticism and she often said to me she had the best job in the newsroom. I think that's probably still true. Could you talk a little bit about, number one, how you got into the uh, line the beat that you're on? And I'm also curious, did you think when you were 10 years old you would grow up to be a TV critic?
2: Oh. (laughs) Um, I wanted to be an ornithologist when I was (laughs) 10 years old. And I probably should have, but that ship has sailed. Um, there's no like path into TV criticism. Like I think seriously, almost every TV critic that I know and you know have as a colleague has uh, sort of fallen backwards into it through 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 one means or another. Um, you know you don't you don't, you don't go to college and major in TV criticism, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But <laughs> but um I you know what 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 I had originally started out was I was uh, freelancing in the '90s and uh, wrote for. Uh, online magazine called Salon, which is still around in a little bit different form. And uh, I became their media critic. Uh, I was doing a lot of writing on uh, news media, generally print publishing and so on. Uh, but I always had an interest in pop culture and television especially. So I kind of started gradually sneaking more and more of that into my columns and and uh, got a call out of the blue from Time Magazine uh, one day that was looking for a full-time TV critic. And I, I had not really considered the job, you know, it, 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 or, or that as a career path, but I said, yeah, and uh, did a lot of, you know, catching up and research on the job. Uh, but, you know, yeah, so, so, so I sort of fell into it. Um, I would be very impressed with anybody who decided from 10 years old that they were gonna be a TV critic and then they actually managed to achieve it, uh, you know. So, uh, although I did watch a, a, just a hell of a lot of TV when I was a little kid. I, I, I tell people uh, some of my greatest training for that was that I, I am the youngest sibling in my family by nine years and having older siblings, I just watched a lot of age-inappropriate TV. <laughs> Uh, which, which
1: back then, not too far back, would be Dallas Dynasty, that kind of. Uh, yeah, and even yeah. like
2: you know the the seventies, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. So yeah, that was that was kind of my college education in in broadcast television. So, okay. and you know, <laughs> it paid off, mom and dad. <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs> um, we're gonna get back to TV a little bit later because I'm dying to get some tips from him on what to watch. I, I gotta admit. So, but first, let's get to your book. Sure. And um, I wonder if you could. First of all, my main question is: Explain the title. What's it about?
2: Um, so, "Audience of One" is kind of a phrase that has gotten used about Donald Trump, especially since he's been uh, since he's become president in the political press and among pundits. Basically, referring to the effect that he is an avid, you know, maybe a addictive TV viewer, particularly of cable news, particularly of cable news about himself, uh, and, and that you know, basically, you know, Fox and Friends, the, the television that he watches has become the forum through which people speak to him. So, you know, the audience of one on that level is Donald Trump. Now, I like to think of it as having a sort of a double meaning, because the book has sort of two storylines, one of which is about the evolution of Donald Trump as a TV figure. But it is also about how television has changed over the recent decades so that we got to the point where the host of The Apprentice could become elected President of the United States. And and part of that, just to to, to point to the subtitle, Donald Trump, Television and the Fracturing of America, a big part of that that I trace over the course of the book is the history of television moving from a three-network mass medium to a, a fragmented niche media enterprise today, where you have thousands of cable channels, and you have a, a, a TV on the phone in your pocket, and there's streaming media, and there's social media, and basically there are smaller and smaller target audiences, so that you know everybody, the, this 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 huge. American common that used to be, you know, cumulative audiences of tens of millions are now a bunch of little individual audiences of one.
1: Thank you. But there is that theme that um, Donald Trump is an entertainer and a celebrity and a producer of his own show. Um, I wonder, you've probably watched hundreds of hours of TV with Donald Trump. And I'm really curious to... Get some views from you on how his persona has evolved since I think you said he came out in 1980 something or other on the Today Show. Yeah, as a figure.
2: Yeah, his his first uh, his first national media appearance was was with Tom Brokaw on the Today Show in August 1980, uh, and that, that sort of sort of brackets the book because I look at a couple of his early TV interviews, one with uh, Tom Brokaw, one that I uh, open up with uh, with Rona Barrett the uh, Uh, Gossip columnist who was the first person to ask him if he would want to run for president uh, presciently Uh, And if you if you watch these video clips, and you can still I think find them on YouTube um, It is a sort of uh, it's like a softer side of Donald Trump on the one hand you can see the you know you you can see the consistent uh, the consistency of the sort of public persona that he's had since then which is you know sort of brash Swaggering, confident, rich guy. But not only does he sort of speak in more diagrammable sentences than he than he tends to do now. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's seriously, it's it's funny. But if you if you watch, you know, it's 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 actually the truth. But but also, it's much more sort of calming, ingratiating. Um, you know, less pugnacious. Uh, a, 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 a sort of more soothing-voiced Donald Trump. And that gets back to, you know, how I'm talking about the, the difference in the mass media of the mid-20th century and the, and the fragmented, polarized media of today. Um, that mass media kind of called for a more... You, anything that you presented on TV had to appeal to a broader amount of people. And it's, this is sort of a more broadly palatable version of Donald Trump that became more extreme and more exaggerated as he, you know, workshopped the media <laughs> in the character over the 80s and 90s and then through The Apprentice.
1: One thing I really loved about the book is it was this armchair guide to TV from about 1960 on and how the shows changed and what people wanted changed. But reality TV is probably the main... Uh, focus of your book can you talk a little bit about how it was born I loved your uh, take on the survivor and Richard Hatch and how the uh, Uber hero had changed as well
2: yeah um, you know reality TV in the broad sense goes back to the early days of TV you had things like candid camera and so on an um, American family on PBS in the 70s uh, but but sort of what we, what we think of as reality TV on a, a, in, in the broad scope today began with Survivor on CBS uh, in the year 2000, and it was it, it was sort of a way in this era in which media was starting to fragment, and the broadcasters had competitors like HBO, where a, a network like CBS could put on an entertainment uh, that was you know sort of unusual and different and and shocking. Um, and one thing that was really striking about uh, the first season of Survivor, which in which you can see some parallels to our current politics is that it was one I don't know how many people either watched Survivor or watched the first season, but it was it, the first season was won by Richard Hatch who was this sort of uh, conniving backstabbing deceitful, but like delightfully entertainingly so competitor who basically won the final jury vote in which all the people that he had gotten eliminated from Survivor voted on who should win the million-dollar prize. He basically won the vote, won the election, by brashly acknowledging what a bad guy he was, you know. Yes, you know, I, I lied, I cheated, I played the game, but, you know, that makes me smart. Uh, and, and that was sort of the spirit of reality TV. You saw that carried forward into a lot of other shows, like The Apprentice, which was created by the same creator of Survivor uh, and produced for Donald Trump. And, and it, it kind of created this template in popular culture and one that you could apply to politics for you know, sort of teaching an audience that they could cheer for an anti-hero. Who was, you know, maybe norms breaking, rule breaking, but did it in an a- appealing and unconventional and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, sort of swaggering way.
1: Well, the other thing about reality TV that you pointed out is how unreal it is. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, the you know, the funny thing is, th- there's. The common critique of reality TV is there's no real reality in it. It's it's manipulated, it's edited, and that is all true. Um, and nobody is more aware of that than people who are fans of reality TV. It's it's part of the pleasure of watching the medium. You know that that people sort of look for how am I being manipulated by the editing? You know who's you know acting out for the camera? Uh, and it sort it, it creates this zone where the boundary between truth and artifice. You know, reality and fiction are sort of fuzzy. It's real, but it's not real. Uh, and, again, that is something, that, that is sort of an environment in which Donald Trump, as a public figure, has, has, you know, kind of, kind of thrived. Um, you know, he was somebody who engaged in what he, uh, what he called truthful hyper, hyperbole, back in the 80s, in the art of the deal. Uh, you know, when he would uh, uh, say that Trump Tower was 10 stories taller than it actually was because that sounded better. Uh, he was uh, a, 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 a cameo star in professional wrestling. Uh, He's a a WWE Hall of Fame member. Another area where, you know, people know it's fake, but they sort of immerse themselves in the fakeness of it. Uh, And that, again, proved to be a kind of thing that you could apply to politics, where you can sort of have this winking, you know, take me seriously, take me literally, take me both ways if you want, um, and appeal to your followers uh, in a way that, you know, they can sort of feel, well, yeah, they, say th- they see through it. They, they, they get it, um, and yet they're, they're willing to follow your lead anyway.
1: So the insider in on the joke with a wink.
2: Uh, yeah, exactly, you know, which can be sort of a way of feeling savvy, and it can be sort of a way of promoting a kind of cynicism where you, know, you sort of say, well, everybody lies, everybody cheats, so what's the big deal about it? And you know, just stick with what your team needs to be, needs to be true and, and believe that.
1: Well, I once want to bring this up, but I have to say that I, you could say that that's morphed into the whole fake news philosophy of today, too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when I think that very few people, when Donald Trump says something is fake news, believe that means this is absolutely fiction and somebody just totally made it up. Uh, you, you, you know, I mean, th- there may be some people who actually believe that, but I think, you know, even ardent followers of his sort of have an understanding Was well, no, it means this thing is true, but it's disrespectful. Or it's true, but it's exaggerated. Or it's true, but it's just being emphasized to make our side look bad and to, you know, undermine the things that are important to us. And it is this way of playing, uh, playing, uh, Playing with reality, where you give people a kind of moral permission to disregard it and say, okay, real, fake, what really matters is the game and the competition and what benefits our side.
1: Having said that, I I was really intrigued by your description of Trump's descent down the escalator at Trump Tower when he announced he was running and how the media reacted. Could you talk about that a little bit?
2: Um, sure. I mean, number one, if we're talking about what the Apprentice did for for Donald Trump, you all, at least I'm sure, remember Donald Trump coming down to the uh, the, the the brass-accented escalator of Trump Tower to the pink marble-lined, what is actually the food court, uh, where <laughs> I've where I've visited often. Uh, of, of Trump Tower, I, I always knew that it was, it was like a great place to find a public bathroom on Fifth Avenue if you needed to, <laughs> like, like, it was, and there were great bathrooms. You just spoiled uh, that for everybody. But that's
1: yeah, I the- know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> you didn't think you were going to be getting Midtown Manhattan travel tips here, but <laughs> um, uh, but that was a shot that was used over and over on The Apprentice. Donald Trump coming down the escalator of Trump Tower. Donald Trump coming down the escalator of the casinos, and the producers would talk about how they would do that because you're shooting somebody from below, sort of of in a power position and you know visually just as a director that kind you know it makes somebody look like a like a golden god ascending from on high everybody's necks are craning up at him people are looking up at them that's you know it's it's a visual statement of power and authority that he then borrows for this important uh, campaign launch where uh, he is surrounded by people holding uh, Trump signs who were hired by an Actors Bureau for I I believe it was 50 bucks um, and uh, it, it, it was this, this big spectacle that, uh, you know, uh, reporters turned out for, but didn't really take seriously, I mean, at the time. I mean, there was, uh, this is not me telling tales out of school, but in her, uh, her campaign memoir, uh, chasing Hillary, my colleague Amy Chosik, who was who was a politics writer for for the Times, talks about how uh, at the New York Times, an editor had told her, "Oh, our political writers aren't going to cover Trump's announcement like the TV writers can do that." Uh, you know, and, and uh, yeah, there, there were you know, it, it was an example of how from from the beginning and through a lot of the campaign, Trump sort of benefited from everybody kind of seeing his campaign as, as a joke and assuming he was never actually going to win. And that can actually be a tremendous asset a, in a campaign, as it turns out.
1: Well, you tell that awful vignette, actually, about how um, one of the stations would just focus on the empty podium at his rallies, yep. waiting for him to show up.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, that, w- that was a thing you saw over and over again. Not only did... Uh, Cable News air his rallies beginning to end during the 2016 campaign, uh, which is basically providing an hour plus long free ad for a campaign, but they would be so excited for it um, that they'd, they'd, they'd have a split screen just showing the empty podium waiting for him to get on. Because what Donald Trump, Donald Trump had this amazing symbiotic relationship with cable news during the 2015, 2016 campaign. Because what does cable news need? What what does cable news need that you know old fashioned news didn't need. It's 24 hours. If you're putting on news 24 hours a day, you have to convince people that there is something exciting and agitating and thrilling going on 24 hours a day even if it's the slowest news day of the year. So you create excitement, you know, you have whatever, you have pundit shows or you overinflate the news that's going on. Well, with Donald Trump, it was fantastic cuz he was willing to supply them with something new and shocking every second of the campaign. And once he'd established that, it didn't even matter if he wasn't going to make news during one of the rallies, if he wasn't gonna say anything new, because just the potential that he was gonna come on felt in itself like news, because cable news had come to define news as something that gets the audience excited, not necessarily something that anybody's gonna learn from. So, you know, it's famously, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox. You know, you, you'll you'll see breaking news on the screen, right, all the time, even if, if if no news is breaking. With Donald Trump, it's the news was breaking as long as his lips were moving, uh, and and that was it was just the the sweetheart deal between him and cable news that lasted the whole campaign.
1: I could say or tweeting. You or tweeting, yes,
2: a, absolutely. It, it didn't didn't even necessarily have to be on camera, and that certainly existed well into his presidency. I'll I'll never forget. CNBC, not long after uh, Trump became president, uh, uh, developed a graphic. I wish I could show you a picture of it that said Trump tweet (laughs) whenever whenever he he tweeted in the morning so that they could immediately get it up on screen.
1: I'm I'm curious to hear what your um, outlook is for this next election cycle coming up. Uh, Do you think the media has learned anything from the last time around? Uh, You can speak to the New York Times. I know we talk about it a lot at the Patriot News Pen Live, but any, any advanced planning you can let us in on?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't sit in on, on, on the politics desk meetings at the New York Times, so I don't want to pretend to greater knowledge, you know, uh, than I have. I think everybody in media and in any field sort of tends to, you know, fight the last war. So I think yeah. that, you know, um, at, at, at least from the standpoint of television, where, you know, I, I, I think I actually, you know, know a little more, I do think that there has been some sense of, you know, revisiting how news media sort of got played the last time around. Uh, see, for instance, the, those rallies that we were talking about, you know, CNN has stopped airing the rallies uninterrupted start to finish. Uh, you know, there's there's been obviously a lot of consideration of what do you do when you have this public figure, you know, who is... Obviously, the things that he says and does are important because he 's the President of America and you know has the nuclear codes and so on but you can't you can 't trust that what he says is necessarily going to be true when he 's saying it, so you know do you put him on the air live and then correct things that are wrong later uh you know there there has been more of that, but on the other hand, you still see the networks going live to say his uh, um, or they call them, press gaggles that he does now in lieu of, of press briefings at the White House in front of the, the helicopter with, you know, the, the blades whirring and so on. And that's sort of become the new equivalent of the rallies. It's just, you know, super exciting and, you know, who knows what he'll say. So, you know, there, there are always ways to make different versions of the same mistake. Um, and I think I think that's, that's the problem with me. It's probably the problem with, like, every... Form of human endeavor, right? Is, is that you know people recognize the last mistake they make, but they don't necessarily recognize when they're making the same mistake in a different form.
1: Yeah, very true. Thank you. Um, I know we're going to get back on that subject when we have time for the Q and A, and I don't want to. I know you have a lot of great questions out there, but I did have a couple personal uh, asks for you. Number one, top three most essential TV shows uh,
2: that are that are on right now, or or that in are that are that are last, that are in, coming in up?
1: recent years.
2: Um, in recent years, I'm a big fan of BoJack Horseman, uh, which is uh, if we have any BoJack fans in, in the audience, uh, which is which is on uh, an animated comedy about a substance abusing, depressive um, former actor who is a horse. Uh, but it's, it's it's also hilarious and really deeply moving and I recommend it to anybody. I like Succession a lot right now on HBO which I actually think it, in a weird way, although it's about business, is one of the best dramas on TV about the uh, Trump era. And uh, over the last few years I've been a big fan of Transparent uh, the uh, sort of dramedy on uh, on on Amazon Prime which is I have not seen it yet but it's going to be airing its finale later in September and so I'm definitely watching out for that uh, if anybody's looking for it if anybody hasn't seen the Americans yet oh, uh, you know I, I, I don't know if yeah that's 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 new news but if you're talking about the past several years that's off the air but if you're looking for something to binge and you haven't watched it yet it is your patriotic duty to watch the Americans
1: <laughs> okay I'm gonna keep on this line, I, I'm fascinated by this Top three most essential TV characters in your view? Wow. Past that's, or present?
2: That's a great question. It's like uh,
1: a pen live listicle, I know, but it's okay.
2: Yeah, I, I know. I I know. Well, I, I think one's one's gotta be uh, uh, Archie Bunker because, <laughs> because that was somebody that I I thought a lot about and wrote about in preparing this book for reasons that that you know may or may not be obvious. Um,
3: who
2: what other tv characters do i really really love um lisa simpson uh, <laughs> is 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 just uh an all-time favorite and uh you know this is this is boring and obvious but i, I think i have to say tony soprano uh because you know that might be it's but so much of the tv of the last 20 years is like a reaction to him so. I'm going to think of like 10 characters after this that I should Just, have said, I know. That, but, yeah. thank, uh, thanks for playing along. I yeah. <laughs>
1: <it>. <laughs> And uh, any, any word on what's coming up this fall? We were talking about in the classic yeah. days, you used to get the really thick TV guide with a fall schedule. And now that's it's gotten diffused a bit. But uh, what are you hearing?
2: There's so much television now. I mean, that is just the big difference in television. You know, there, there. It's not just new shows coming, but there's going to be new two new streaming networks arriving this fall: uh, uh, Apple TVs and Disney's, which will have a tremendous amount of content. I, I'm very interested in it, but they have not shown critics any of that. Uh, but that's just like you know, kind of hurtling at the earth like an asteroid. Uh, I'm really excited for HBO series based on The Watchmen, not only because I think that was a really intriguing graphic novel, uh, but it's being adapted by Damon Lindelof, who is the creator of Lost and The Leftovers, a couple of my favorite shows of all time I could probably speaking of our top characters I could probably name three like right off Lost off the top of my head um, and uh, uh, what else the Transparent Finale uh, again I'm, I'm very excited for uh, and uh, uh, I, I believe no, actually I don't know when that's coming back oh and HBO's doing an adaptation of His Dark Materials which I think could be very interesting uh, but again haven't quite seen it so I can't vouch for it
1: and I'll give you one last question before we get to Q&A, but do you agree that we are in a golden age for television?
2: Yes, but <laughs> I mean, I, 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 always, I always hate christening golden ages because, you know, people call the 70s a golden age and ni- they call the 90s a golden age. I think there is more great television on now than ever. But that's partly just because, you know, there's more television than ever, uh, you know. And there's more artistic freedom and it's more inclusive and you're hearing more different voices. Um, you know, you're, you're getting shows on the air that are both from people who wouldn't have gotten to make TV shows 20 or 30 years ago and that wouldn't have, you know, uh, that wouldn't have gotten on the air, lasted 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, Atlanta, actually, which is another great yeah. example thinking of shows that I think are like really important right now, is an example of that. Um, so yeah, I would, say, I would say we're in a golden age now, but you know, every age of TV is kind of a golden age, like you just gotta know where the gold is. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what we can count on you for doing, so thank you very, very much. Sure. Uh, we wanna start the questions from the audience.
4: All right, just raise your hand and I'll come to you. One back here.
3: Have you ever met Trump? And if you haven't, what would you ask him if you did? Uh,
2: I have met Trump. Well, I've actually met Trump several times because he was a TV star for years and years and years, while I was a TV critic, uh, especially at Time Magazine, and so I would see him at events for The Apprentice and so on. But I actually uh, did a. Lengthy the interview with him only only once in 2003 when The Apprentice was starting up. Uh, and that was a whole experience in, in itself and I talk about it a little in the book and I won't uh, uh, rehash it. But you know, it wasn't, obviously it wasn't a political interview, he was, you know, this guy who used to be Donald Trump, this 80s nostalgia figure who was gonna be, uh, you know, hosting, hosting a game show. So it was it was more talking to him as a celebrity. Honestly, if I had the chance to talk to him now, um, I would not ask him what he thought of the book. But I'd, I'd be, I would actually really be curious about particularly his childhood TV watching habits oh. and what he liked and what... I would ask him about what influence he thought that it had on him, although yeah, I think he sometimes kind of resists self-reflecting in that way, but I would at least ask. But I would just love to know, like, you know... Uh, you know, I know a little about this, and and you know from from what I've been able to glean from other interviews, talk about this a little bit in the book. But you know, I would just love to know what you know shows. Well, Donald Trump was sitting down in front of his color TV and watching when he was eight years old.
1: You talk a little bit about um, his him sitting there with his mother watching the coronation of Elizabeth in yeah. England. Yeah,
2: that that was a that was a kind of a fascinating thing for me to dig into. Um, the one. Lengthy childhood memory he shares of his mother in the art of the deal uh, So I should say he or his ghostwriter uh, but or, or, or he has told to his ghostwriter is um, Watching his mother sit down in front of the TV all day in 1953 and watch the coronation of Queen Elizabeth His mother was a Scottish expatriate uh, and he said, you know, she was just fascinated by the 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 glamour and the pageantry of it, and it was it's just this very revealing moment to me, not only about Trump, you know, just as a person, but you know, and I unpack this some in the world. It reminds you that he's of this first generation that he was basically born when TV was born, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the. Uh, you know in the 1940s when when primetime TV was just getting established and he's part of this Generation that was the first one to grow up with you know this this entirely different virtual space the same way that you know Kids today are the first ones growing up entirely with social media uh, And yeah, I thought that was it's kind of a revelatory yeah. Thing to to understand just you know how a worldview starts getting created
4: We have a question back here. Yeah,
0: Thanks. So I'm a cultural weirdo. I don't watch TV, except the evening news at 6.30. <laughs> um, when I'm old and decrepit, I'll stay home and watch TV.
2: That's fine. That's I won't so, hold it against you. This yet. is
0: curious. I've noticed over the years that my attention span to stick with things is so much shorter. And where I used to like read a long newspaper article or watch a TV program. So it's not just that the news media is fragmented. I think our attention span in general has gotten a lot shorter. Can you comment on that? because? Yeah, I, I yeah, mean y- how we get we get not only from fragmented sources but yeah. we only take in fragmented portions of the news.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean part of it's like, it's like this thing, right? Like like they're, they're just, there there're just are so many n- number one, there there are so many distractions in the modern world and so many different screens and it just it, it it rewires your brain into how to distribute its attention and its focus. But I, I also think, you know, you say you say you don't watch much television. No, but they're not, they're yeah, so, so, uh, but, and this is a thing I also get into in the book, whether you watch TV or not, television is the nervous system of our culture mm-hmm. it's it's where politics are conducted it's you know how the news plays out the news is affected often more and more these days by television um, and whether or so whether or not you watch TV yourself I say it's like secondhand smoke you are living in a society whose metabolism and whose mindset is largely set by electronic media and you know I don't, I don't mean to be like one of these you know TV's just the world's going to hell because of TV. Because, like, I'm a TV critic, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a masochist, I, I, I love television, <laughs> but, but it has these actual effects on everyone, whether you're
4: watching or not, that people should be conscious of. We have a question over here in the corner, back over this way. Oh, yeah.
3: Hello. Thank you for Hi. this, this book, and I uh, really appreciated the tone, which is you cover some very serious things, but you do it in a fairly light, yeah. entertaining way with humor. And uh, thank you. And uh, But my question is, I know you cover the Democratic debates. Yeah. And I don't think you've written about the most recent one yet. I, I have not, because
2: I, I, should, I should worry. I didn't watch most of it. I was actually doing another event like this while it was, while it was okay. going on, so I was well, competing I was, with it.
3: I was going to ask you if you had a, a comment on, as a television moment, you know, not a policy moment, but Beto O'Rourke's comment about we're going to take your, what did he say, we're going to? Oh, yeah, 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 the, the,
2: the, 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 the hell yes, we're going to take Just your AK a force. Yeah. Then I actually saw, okay, this is like another aspect of TV, right? It's like so so much of the TV we we quote-unquote watch now. We're like watching through seeing the... The, the clips today, right? So I, you know, I kind of saw that Democratic debate the same way that I, like, quote-unquote, watch Saturday Night Live, is that, you know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll hear what the good skits are and I'll watch it on YouTube or whatever. So so I, I saw some of those moments. Uh, Beddoe's, I think, you know, I did not really see how it went over in the room, but it seemed like a really strong moment of, you know, emotional connection. I mean, with without without getting into, you know... Anybody's position on gun control, or whether you think it's good or bad, or what you know, you sh- God knows nobody should be like asking me my opinion on you know how to how to stop gun violence. Uh, but it was you know a moment where it 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 was like this the second you know you know I'm just going to say it, uh, and I think that creates a great emotional connection at least in a democratic primary. You know I, I'm not predicting that he's necessarily going to do any. Better because of it, because he's on his what, fourth or fifth campaign reboot at this point. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised with something like that if his polls go up one, one or two points, because it, it it's these moments of you know sort of authenticity or like rolling the dice that people often look for in these in these debates. So. You Those also mentioned
1: that debates have turned into bo- to boxing matches now, and it used to be like that.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not you know it's not the Lincoln Douglas debates anymore. I mean, for for one thing, they're they're I'm sure not in the classic sense debates at all. It's you know it's it's campaign you know candidates standing on a stage and saying a thing, giving sound bites in quick succession, and you know only occasionally is there a, uh, an exchange from them. But you know they're also they're also just performances. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes see when people criticize the, the punditry about debates after the fact, they'll say, you know, oh, that's just, that's just theater criticism, like you're just looking at the surface of it. And I can understand that because sometimes analyze, for, for, for pundits, like analyzing the TV element of it can be a way of dodging the serious politics. But I also think the theater criticism aspect of it is important. Because these are performances, people are not just trying to send literal messages to the voters. They're trying to send, you know, sort of emotional messages. They're trying, they're trying to demonstrate through how they make their argument, what they would be like as a general election candidate, what they would be like as a president. Uh, and so, you know, that that theater stuff, whether you want it to matter or not, r- totally does matter. Uh, and again, just to you know keep up the sales pitch for, for, for this product. Uh, you know, I talk about that a a lot in how Donald Trump approached, uh, the, the, the 2015 Republican primary debates, which he treated basically as like an elimination reality contest and sort of a, a, a dominance contest where you, you just picked fights because the point of fighting is to fight and to show that you're a fighter. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for theater criticism of debates like that because that's how people are watching them and that's how they're being affected. Okay, I have a
4: question right over here.
3: You had a column in uh, Times, uh, I think it was this past Sunday. You mentioned a little bit about Reagan. You kind of compared a little bit yeah. Reagan and Trump. Would you uh, go a little bit more into that? Uh, Reagan was an actor, but he seemed to have some real convictions and I'm not sure about Trump. Would you go... Does, just go into that a little bit more about the difference?
2: Yeah, I'll try and give you the thumbnail of it. I mean, what I was sort of responding to, I, I wrote this uh, lengthy essay uh, called Donald Trump as a Television Character, uh, something like that, I can't remember the headline, uh, in, in the Sunday review section of the Times last weekend. It was sort of a curtain raiser for this book. And I went into, a lot of people have made the comparison sort of trying to make sense of just things today between Donald Trump and, oh, well, Trump's really, he's like Reagan, you know, he's an entertainer who who entered the White House. Uh, and, you know, we can make sense of it in these terms that we understand. And it's, on one level, an okay comparison. You know, they were both people who came out of the world of entertainment. Donald Trump came much more directly out of the world of entertainment. He went straight from Celebrity Apprentice to the White House, uh, You know, whereas Donald Trump was governor of California for two terms. But also, I think that the more, the more salient, important difference is that Ronald Reagan was an actor, and Donald Trump was a reality TV performer. And playing a character in the two media is very different. As an actor, you have to imagine yourself in the shoes of other people. So you have to have... Empathy, what we call in, you know, regular life empathy, you know, to, to imagine that other people have inner lives and that they're just as important as yours. And you have to believe this so deeply that you can even make a fake character on a page become real. Um, and Reagan often said that, you know, he thought that helped prepare him to be president. As a reality TV character, you're playing yourself, but you're playing yourself more. You're, you're exaggerating the provocative and outrageous aspects of yourself. You're, out, you're, you're, you're weaponizing the p- parts of your personality that you can use to get attention and take attention away from other people. And it, it very much is a kind of performance that it's like anti-empathy. You kind of have to not believe that other people are too real because that'll take the focus away from you and it'll prevent you from being your fullest you. So that's, that's the, that was the big difference I wanted to spell out for people. Okay,
4: to your left, we have a question just past the podium here. Okay.
5: Thank you, sir. You mentioned the symbiotic relationship between CNN and Trump. Uh, the camera focused on the empty lectern. Yeah. Uh, the Political premise I'm a political consultant that if you can have your candidates name out there sometimes whether it's good or bad that's an advantage because in that case in that primary there were 16 candidates however good or bad they were but you didn't get the attention that Trump got yeah okay that extends beyond television yep uh, and If we think about the gentleman's comment back here about attention span, uh, and we think about your comment about CNN wonders, how can we keep the audience excited today? They're not saying, what is the real news we have to report? Uh, You also get into this attention span issue. I don't mean to go on so long here, but now, we have
2: the attention span for it, it's now okay.
5: News coverage.: nice. Now news coverage is five things you need to know before you watch the debate. Yeah. And it extends further. Tonight's interview was name three television characters. Name three television shows. Give it to us in little bites like that. How do we arrest this trend? Because I'm saying it's not just television, it's the print media. It's interviews, it's everything. How do we address this?
2: Um, yeah, I don't know that we can. I mean, number one, like I don't I think that's that's inherently bad. It you know depends how you apply it. I mean, I actually thought we got a productive conversation out of me giving my top three. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, if like
1: I, I'm going to chime <laughs> in. I yeah. feel like I can <laughs> but, do that. Um, uh, I would say this. I, I'm with you to a point. I think that these little lists and fun things and what they call the dating of interview, you know, where you just often get reactions. That's interesting, too. But we also want to do... We ran a very long profile, actually, on James, uh, in the paper on Thursday. We want to make sure that we have the lengthy pieces as well. But you want the variety out there. Sometimes we go overboard, no doubt about it. But sometimes making somebody react to something really quickly can yield to some pretty interesting answers.
2: Um, but, but you know, I guess my shorter answer is, is is that I don't think that you can just... If, if there is... You know this sort of global, you know, change in the way the society communicates that's being, uh, you know, affected by certain media. Like people will say, "Well, how do we just make it stop?" Yeah, I mean, like you can't. You know, you, what you can do is recognize the media environment that you work in and and use it better. You know, you can do smart listicles and and dumb listicles, and you can you can also use. You know, I would say as as much as the you know, flitter, uh, flittering attention span is a problem in our society and I see it in myself. One thing that you see, th- there's sort of a corollary to that in you know, digital media is that it also enables um, you know, very, uh, very in-depth focus. You know, this, in, in, in other words, the same digital media that gives you your Twitter feed that, you know, is 280 characters at a time and shifts from topic to topic to topic to topic and has you, you know, un, has been unable to, like, sit down without... Looking at my phone every you know ninety seconds for some new stimulus. Also, people use it to listen to two-hour podcasts. Yeah. You know, people you know will 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 you know uh, explore long-form journalism online like that 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 still exists. Um, but you know, I think I think you have to meet people where they are and, and try to do it better.
4: Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you can. Yeah. <laughs> we have a question up to your right, up here on the second level, over here oh. to your right. Over here. Hi. Oh, hey. I'm
2: <laughs> over here. <laughs> I'm like surrounded on all sides here. <laughs>
3: I wanted to follow up on the Reagan analogy in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are Trump and Reagan, if I'm not mistaken, are our two oldest presidents. And we now know that... So far. Yeah. 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 So far. <laughs> Sorry. Touché. Um We now know that in Reagan's last years as president, uh, he suffered from dementia. He was very much not with it, uh, and his staff had to basically shield him from reality, if you will. Having watched Donald Trump over the years, you said that early on it was a kind of kinder, gentler Donald Trump and now more combative. Do you see in the most recent years... Even most recent months, evidence of complete flight from reality or partial fr- flight from reality—that that, that, yeah, that I, we're getting to the point where we may, 20 years from now, it will be revealed that Donald Trump was uh, mentally, you know, like Ronald Reagan in his last years as president.
2: I, I get asked that a lot. I mean, the only answer I, I can—I can first answer you answer you in the Trumpian way and say that you know many people are saying that um uh, you, you know but um i you know i'm not I, i'm not a doctor <laughs> you know i'm not even dr harold bornstein uh and you know while i can while i can glean a lot of information from watching tv i i, I can't diagnose somebody from it uh, you know the only thing that i will say is is that whatever is or isn't going on with you know donald trump's internal wiring like you know all of ours uh, uh eventually uh, I, I do think that regardless, at least part of the change that you see from very early Donald Trump to, you know, the Donald Trump to, uh, of today, uh, you know, which is you know, not, not just rambling but, you know, sort of speaking in, you know, sort of much punchier and combative sentences, uh, you know, and just the, the, the more belligerentness of the tone. It's also partly, you know, that's going to be the effect when um, all of your inputs – for the past 20, 30, however many years, have rewarded you for being that way, you know? He was on TV for 14 seasons being a TV star because he told people you're fired every week. <laughs> you know, that's, that's gonna tell you that, you know, that kind of combative tone is, is you know, it's, it's is, uh, um, you know, is, is something you're gonna get reward for. So I think at least some of those stylistic changes can be uh, attributed to that. The rest of them I leave to future biographers and or doctors.
4: Okay, we have enough time for three more questions which I've selected here. We're gonna be coming up here to the front.
1: Uh, I found your book very compelling and very appalling. (laughs) Thank
2: you. (laughs) Uh, We're we're gonna put that on the cover of the paperback. i was uh, I never watched those shows, so it was somewhat horrifying to me to read all the history that it went into him and the celebrity and the the politics together yeah and I am wondering um if do people who are trump fans have they read the book at all and does it change their mind um i have i I, I will be t- well number one <laughs> you know if, if like. Three years of, you know, hasn't, like, changed anybody's mind in supporting Trump. Like, I Like, I love my book, but I don't think that's necessarily going to do it for anybody. I would, however, like, I, I will be honest. I've, you know, I've heard, uh, you know, I've gotten feedback on my book from, you know, Republicans that, you know, it's tended to be, like, more Republicans who are either never Trumpers or, you know, Trump agnostic uh, i talked to Charlie Sykes about it the other day. We had, like, a great conversation. I've not gotten a lot of feedback on it yet from, you know, uh, the Trump voters. I, I would imagine, you know, it's not the sort of book they're going to seek out. I'd love to know what they, what the you know... If somebody, like, hated it, I would love to know why they did. Um, but, yeah, I have, to, I have
4: to get back to you on that one. Okay, we have one more up here. You mentioned... Uh, Archie Bunker as your favorite, or one of your favorite TV characters, yeah. and and that also uh, there's some connection to Archie Bunker in the book. I've thought that Archie's almost like a quintessential Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk more about what your thoughts are on that?
2: I mean, Archie Bunker's appeal, you know, Archie Bunker, protagonist of All in the Family, created by Norman Lear, uh, the the great and still... Great television creator, still still kicking and working in TV, uh, was this uh, you know outspoken, outrageous, loudmouth, you know bigot, racist, uh, who said incredibly offensive things on a, a brilliant and hilariously written and like deeply humane show uh, that people love to watch. And Norman Lear's intention in creating the show was that in order to sort of understand bigotry and racism, you had to be able to, you couldn't just, uh, you know, demonize the people who thought that way or, or thought of them as not understandable. You had, to, you had to see it in somebody that, you know, that, that you loved so that you could, you know, see this in people in your own life. Uh, and, you know, to, to, to him, that was a way of, you know, th- that was the best way to social understanding and, and, and progress. However, um, you know, you could read Archie two ways, and people received Archie two ways. You could laugh at what he said, or you could laugh with what he said. And there were people, you know, who watched All in the Family and thought that it was a great show because it, 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 you know, satirized him so well and and satirized that sort of point of view of ignorance. And there were people who loved it because they agreed with the stuff that he said. And, you know, they loved that there was somebody on TV saying it and they thought there was nothing wrong with Archie. Now, you know, you can say, well, then why is he one of my, you know, favorite characters on television if, you know, some people saw an excuse for their own racism in him. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, my answer is that, you know, like, that's what art is. Like, uh, art is, is, is complicated, and you can't control people's responses to it. You know, if there's just a simple answer, this person is absolutely bad, and, you, you know, that's like, you know, a, a, a fairy tale or something. Like, you know, in, in order for art to be powerful, you have to be able to operate on it with your own mind and interpret it your own way. And there is always the possibility that some people will interpret it in really noxious ways. Um, but anyway, you know, the, the, the connection to Donald Trump, you know, I will, I will just say that, you know, that, w- that was another case where uh, a big part of his appeal, and, and, you know, this is not me saying this, this is what, you know, his followers would say at his rallies and, and do over and over, you know, he says what he means. He says what he 's on his mind, you, know, you, you might not like it, but you know, he calls it like he sees it. Uh, and uh, you know no, n- no less than Steve Bannon, uh, who was one of you know, the architects of Trumpism, referred to him as it, it was a quote in the New York Times actually as he 's Archie Bunker dude, and he meant it as a
4: compliment. Hmm. OK, we have one final question right over here. I was curious about um, what you think about the future of TV news if Donald Trump loses
2: and we have a president who is normal and his truthfulness is not questioned all the time it seems like that's so much fodder for CNN, MSNBC and even you know Fox News, um, you know what you think of those um, uh, what you think their future is if there's a different president? Um, Donald Trump, Always says himself that you know if, if you didn't have Donald Trump, if you had a boring president. Uh, their their ratings would crater, and you know that's one thing that I think you know Donald Trump is is totally right on, <laughs> or or at least largely right. I mean, in, in the sense that you know it's undeniable that pro-Trump television, anti-Trump television, or just Trump skeptical television has seen its ratings shot. Sh- you know, shoot up because we're in an environment where like people are. Just on edge, you know, all the time. Uh, that means news viewership. However, you know, I think we've also seen that you know, the the business model of cable news, uh, it you know, is to find agitation and, if necessary, create it. You know, even where it doesn't exist. So, you know, when Obama was president, you know, there was there you know there was the Tea Party. You know, there there was there is. If the president is more dull, there's also the reaction to that president. There is the culture war, which you know largely brought Trump into to office and will consi- you know, uh, continue uh, no, uh, nonetheless. So um, I would not be surprised if uh, you know the ratings slump off. But I also think you know there's 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 just going to be substitutes. Uh, even you know if uh, you know we 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 end up with you know. President Michael Bennett or something, and and you go weeks without
4: hearing about him. All right, let's give a round of applause to Kate and James for a wonderful talk today. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.